Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 10, Little Fish Bite If You've Got Good Bait, where we will be looking at Chapters 18 and 19 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of fishing for information. Where did that name come from? Uh, it was from a song from Trout Fishing America. I've never heard of it, but cool. So anyway, heads up, we're recording downstairs again. Both the cats are awake. There may be some distractions. Let's see how this goes. So before we begin, a short explanation, or at least I'm going to attempt for it to be a fast explanation. Too late, sorry. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Wise Man's Fear, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phonemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the books and seven words from our own lives. All right. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, the usual one, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, our discussions are going to naturally assume that either A, you've read all the main books in the continuity, or B, you don't mind spoilers. Needless to say, we're going to be talking spoilers. Finally, as a word to our community... Be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. So, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and segue into our 45-second recap. And a short apology for the air conditioner noise. All right, I've got my stopwatch ready. Phoenix, are you ready? Sure, why not? All right, hope you like raspberries. In three, two, one, go. Quoth is dragged away from the archives by Will and Sim, who try to make him have fun playing corners at the Aeolian, a Herculean task that it gets easier when Denna shows up and tricks the boys into thinking that she is a poor defenseless woman who doesn't understand card games or gambling, that is, until she schools them and takes them for all they're worth. It is all good, though, because she bankrolls their evening by way of a stalker. Um, anyway, at the end of the evening, she and Quoth go out walking together where she teaches him all about scamming gullible men out of their money. Both notices that Denna's ring is gone, and it turns out that Ambrose is to blame. We can see where this is going. Revenge, anyone? 37.16 seconds. <sighs> no raspberries this time. Yeah, what was that? Y y what? Say it again. No raspberries this time. Again? I couldn't hear that. I said no raspberries this time. Is my mic in the wrong place? <laughs> Nah, I think I can hear you that time. All right. So we've got two chapters this week. The first one, Blood and Wine, is one of those rare instances where Quoth's love life and friend lives coincide, as we see him spending time with Will and Sim and also with Denna. And turns out she seems to be pretty good company for the two of them as well. Honestly, I think that Denna is probably a really interesting person and more interesting when not paired solely with Quoth. I also get the impression that she's something of a social chameleon, so she gets on with most people. It's a skill that she's had to hone for survival. Fair point. 
So the evening starts with Quoth finally dragged out of the archives by Will and Sim, who take him to the Aeolian to drown his sorrows. It's interesting that the wording used is the warm embrace of the archives, because usually the warm embrace implies death. I struggled and cursed them, but they were firm in their convictions, and the three of us braved the chill wind on the road to Imre. So when they get to the Aeolian, they get their usual spot over by the fire, and they seem to be having a relatively pleasant evening. Of course, Quoth is both pining for the archives and also for Denna, when who should show up? Denna. Yeah. She has them play along with a bit where they have to pretend that they've been waiting for her. And, I mean, Quoth really doesn't have to pretend that much, but thankfully Sim actually goes along with it. <laughs> Like, he's got actual acting chops. His willingness to yes and is impressive. <laughs> Naturally, this ingratiates Denna to Will and Sim a bit, and, and they agree to play a game of corners with Denna. So Denna is going to pretend that she's never played before. Like, she actually pretends convincingly. She pretends to be this... Oh, but I've never played this game. How is it played? Is it easy? What's gambling like? Is this too much? Yeah, it's pretty transparent. To us, but not to the boys. True. I mean, these are people who've basically only played the same people ever. It's Will and Sim and Manette and Quoth. So they all know each other's tells. They all know each other's style but they've never actually had to deal with people outside of their, their group, their clique. Or bluffing. Yeah, they've never really been taken for a ride. We do have a cat that is trying to distract us. Apologies if we start becoming more and more scattered. Hey, kitten. Please don't chew on anything on the couch. So then after the opening thrashing at corners... Dennis starts making some inquiries about the nature of magic and sympathy. Specifically, storybook magic, it sounds like. Also, though, it sounds a little bit like she's, one, trying to be an audience surrogate of, oh yeah, can you please re-explain the magic system in this book? And two, if you read a little bit further into it, it's a little bit like she's trying to figure out if, a companion of hers has tried to pull the wool over her eyes. Or possibly a patron. I was thinking Ambrose. I was thinking both of them. Master Ash as well. Maybe. All that being said, I would assume that Master Ash, Cinder, because let's face it, is probably going to be more successful at the storybook magic. And... Ambrose is just going to be bullshirting her. That said, Quoth is able to demonstrate pretty easily just how dangerous sympathy could be. While Ambrose may lack the raw skill and talent of someone like Quoth, his complete and utter lack of scruples mean that he will do whatever he can and whatever he wants. And even just that middling level of talent is terrifying when combined with his lack of remorse. He doesn't care about things like the Iron Law. 
he knows he can buy off whatever threats might happen from the magistrates or the masters. He has no consequences that people can really inflict on him. True. Now we also get a little bit of Denna saying, but that's all kind of like conservation of mass and physics and whatnot. I've heard about real magic. Like I heard a story about how our man Quoth called up some sort of demon wind and Quoth just going, wait, 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 wait. Did Ambrose tell her that? And he downplays it. It was just a wind, no demon involved. For once. If it were anybody else, I think he would be boasting about it. Oh yeah, totally, 10 demons even. <laughs> this is also Denna's first, and so this is also Denna's first inkling that the masters at the university would whip a misbehaving student. And even when that misbehavior is relatively minor. Or something where the student didn't even realize they were doing it in this particular case. We also, of course, know that these consequences seem to be things that a good lawyer and or wealthy endowments at the university can help a student get out of. I do like the little back and forth and the stage whisper responding to Denna saying that both Will and Sim seem to have a failing relation with the gentler sex. Women apparently are the gentler sex. I don't particularly like that, but we're going to move past that. And Sim goes and says, Will, did she say failing or flailing? And Will is like, for me, failing. For you, flailing. In this case, I think Will seems resigned to his fate. Whereas Sim is constantly, hopefully, flailing about trying to get the attention of a girl. And failing. Denna also hints at another kind of magic, where a line of text can alter someone's perception of reality. And I couldn't help but think, you know what that is? That's just rhetoric. There's nothing magic about it. Like, you read a line of text, even if it's in bad faith, even if you reject it, its tenets, its principles, everything about it, it still has a way of warming itself into your brain and framing how you look at reality. Reminds me a little bit of Inside Out and one of the jokes that is definitely meant for the adults in the room where Bing Bong knocks over a box that is opinions and a box that is facts and get them all jumbled up and then just starts like putting them back <laughs> willy-nilly <laughs> and saying that they're interchangeable. In this case, you can see that sort of thing anytime someone does that BS. I'm just asking the questions. Because all that does is it just puts that into the realm of possibility, into the things that you have to consider. Even if you're like, this is not actually the case, this is not the thing, you are still thinking about it in those terms. Consider UFOs, right? As soon as people started asking, are they alien spacecraft, they became defined as either alien spacecraft or not alien spacecraft. Even if you are a skeptic, you have to prove they are not alien spacecraft. You have to think in terms of they are not alien spacecraft. You're not actually able to define them for anything that they might actually be. They're just unidentified. Right. If you've identified them as alien spacecraft, they cease to be UFOs. Because now they are identified flying objects. Exactly. 
So when Denna brings up the idea of magic that is kind of just writing things down, Quoth mentions that there's signalry, and Denna is like, but that's not what I mean. What if someone told you they knew a type of magic that did more than that? A magic where you sort of wrote things down and whatever you wrote became true. I like your explanation of that being rhetoric, as in conspiracy theory. I, I don't think that that's exactly what is meant. I almost think that maybe because she is working with a member of the Chandrian who probably knows what is currently thought of as storybook magic, yada, 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 that maybe they do know a way to make a binding of sorts by writing something down. Or it's possible that, again, Ambrose is just lying to her. But I like the, if someone saw the writing, even if they couldn't read it, it would become true for them. So almost like a way to trap someone into a reality that isn't there. Wondering if that may have been the trap that Quoth fell into when he became Coat. We have this assumption oftentimes that Coat is an identity that Quoth willingly assumed. What if it was something that was done to him? I have been wondering about that as well, yes. What I also wonder about is could this also be connected to how Denna ties those yellish knots in her hair? We know that she tied the word beautiful into her hair. And we also know that Bast kind of disputes the characterization of beautiful. However, I'm going to point out something. Whether it was on purpose or not, you skipped over something that is pretty funny, especially listening to the audiobook, which is Sim vigorously rubbing his thigh under the table. And anyone with a mind's eye can see what Denna saw and knows that Sim really isn't doing that, but can see why Denna teased him for it. Don't touch the bottom of the table. Ew. <laughs> That's enough of that one. Okay, bye. Moving on. After receiving this explanation of magic and having a good chuckle at Sim's expense, Denna makes good on her promise and grants the boys access to a fine bottle of Scutton from the cellars of the Aeolian. Turns out she's on good terms with the barkeep. Well, we already kind of knew that. However, this is our second mention of gay people within the story. And this one is a fair bit more flattering while still being kind of not. Except actually, no, I think that they're bi. Yeah. I don't think that they're gay. I think that they're bi. Because there is a not implication, but not explicit explanation that Diok would gladly have sexual relations with both women and men. And that he and Stanchion are a couple. And not just a business couple. Right. Granted, Diok and Stanchion are characters that we like a bit better. We know them. Quoth has a positive opinion of them in general. That's true, but I mean, the first explanation of any gay character at all was in that gay panic type of a way, and it's nothing against the couple. It had everything against Quoth, because he got hit on 
by a guy and immediately is like, no, 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 I don't do that. Which is such an overreaction and, <sighs> and I didn't like it. And that was the one and only mention of gay people in that book. And then at least it's sort of made up for at this point. I don't know. I think that the little joke about being tired or lucky or ambidextrous is kind of funny. I'm pretty sure it was funny for 2010 or whenever he wrote it, but the ambisextrous, I mean, the first time I listened to it, it was clever. And then every time since then is, eh. It's the sort of thing that's funny when you're in like middle school. And mind you, sometimes I am 12, especially when you get to the, you see, Dennis said to Sim, as if explaining to a child. It's all just energy, and we can direct it in different ways. It's like when you do this. And she began to vigorously rub her hands up and down her thighs, mimicking his earlier motion. It's all just energy. And that's why I think that that is the funniest little bit. Because I am 12 in some ways. I like sexual innuendo, especially when it's clever. This strikes me as the sort of thing that there's probably at least a little bit of truth behind all of this. Like, this is the sort of thing I can see a particularly naive undergrad using to describe friction without realizing what their action actually looked like. Yeah, it seems like it could have been lifted from a real conversation. Granted, it seems like every time I wind up playing D&D with some particular friends... I almost always gravitate towards the conversations that are going to just be us laughing at all sorts of innuendo and taken out of context, potentially dirty-ish things. Like my thorn whip with our last <laughs> group of friends. And... For those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast and not a video, Will just winced in the funniest, like, I can't believe you actually brought that up. No comment. <laughs> oh, we were all in stitches, though. It was good fun. Moving on to Chapter 18, Gentlemen and Thieves. Quoth and Denna take off from the Aeolian and go for a bit of a stroll here. And now that they're alone together, Quoth is doing a little bit of fishing of his own. In this case, he's trying to figure out, so what's the deal with you and Ambrose? Without actually saying it, you know? Okay, but he doesn't really even get to Denna and Ambrose until like the last page. He doesn't get to that, but he's angling for it. However, this interaction proves that Denna in no way knew that Ambrose was Kvothe's antagonist. Yeah. It doesn't even occur to her that they go in the same circles even as they are both at the same school. She doesn't even know if they know each other because Ambrose is quite a bit older and... Richer. Richer, yep. And carries himself with a certain demeanor that she doesn't associate with Kvothe. So there's a little bit of a reminder of, oh, hey, yeah, somebody showed up at the fishery for Quoth. 
And there's a little bit of wordplay. Person that showed up said that I'd sold her a charm. And then Dennis saying, I did come to look for you a while back, but I never mentioned your abundant charm. They're both charismatic folk. They make their way by their wits and by their ability to get people to play along. You can definitely see the kinship there. And then we've got a little bit of Ambrose taking up space in Quoth's head, rent-free, as he just imagines Denna charming the pants off of Ambrose. Ugh. That's an image that I didn't need to see. So Quoth starts his inquiry by asking, so whatever happened to Kellen? Turns out Kellen didn't like her spending so much time with Jeffrey, and... Jeffrey, turns out, was his own bag of stupid. Bag of gullible. Yeah. Quoth has a whole bunch of preconceptions about poets, and Jeffrey does nothing to dispel these notions. True. Essentially, he was taken for a ride and parted with his purse by someone that Denna, who also rooks people and takes advantage of their purses describes as a bench. You get the sense that Denna feels at least a little protective of Jeffrey, like he's kind of a puppy in her eyes. Also a little bit of pride at her craft, which is essentially parting people from their purses. And we get a description of this rook, which is probably something that she has done a thousand times over. And on top of that, we get a description of how someone who is a con artist, for lack of a better word, knows which pawn shops are safe to perform a con at. Thieves can't. So a can't is a secret language. You have thieves can'ts, con artists can'ts, all of these can'ts. They're basically secret visual languages that look like small random marks to the uninitiated but carry a very specific meaning for particular trades. So for instance, the con artists have a cant that basically indicates this pawn shop has a broker who's willing to play along. The thieves have cants that indicate whether this pawn broker is a good fence or not. Quoth comes to this more from the thieves side than the con artist side. Though he also admits that he can't read it. Yes. Yeah, so Dennis clearly performed this con quite a few times. This reminds me a lot of, in American Gods, Mr. Wednesday explaining the Stradivarius con to Shadow that relies on passing off an obviously fake thing as something valuable and rare, and then getting their mark to go and pay top dollar for this, and then offer to split it halfway with a pawnbroker. And then, of course, by the time all said and done, they're long gone by the time their mark can discover what they actually got. We also have a little bit here where Kvothe is exceedingly kind and actually gives Denna his cloak. This is one of the few nice things that he owns, so I thought this was a touching little gesture of his. He doesn't have much in the world, and this is the one luxury that he has. And it's the one thing that keeps him warm on a cold night, and he gives it to someone else. Because there is more wind tonight than I thought. I thought that was a little reminder of his kinship with the wind. 
Before we go too much further into this, there's a little bit of text here that makes me think that it's possible that Jeffrey was conning Denna because we know that Denna gave Jeffrey her emerald earrings that were given to her by, what's his name? Kellen. Yeah, that guy. Because Jeffrey stupids himself out of his money and then complains to Denna that he has stupided himself out of his money and that his parents will not give him any more money. And, of course, the last letter he received says that his mother is sick. I also get the sense that, especially after we saw Denna playing the naive child-playing-cards game, right? It's entirely possible that Jeffrey was just such a person doing the same game. And it's possible that Denna may have gotten taken by it, which may also be why Kellen kicked her out, because she got conned. Lots and lots of layers within layers within layers. It's like Inception. Right. Again, watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. You know, I kind of have to do that now because I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, it's great. It's Michael Caine and Steve Martin. And <laughs> Why have I never seen this? I don't know. Okay, well, that's a new mission. It's really good. So during the whole scuffle with the wind and trying to duck out of the way and both giving Dinna his cloak, the loot case that has been steadily falling apart, loses a buckle. And Kvoth's natural instinct is just to reach into his cloak, which is around that other person, to grab some wire to secure the lid on. <laughs> Not realizing said other person can't read his mind and doesn't know why all of a sudden he's getting a little grabby. Kvoth does not always uh, know his social cues. No, not at all. And Denna is just like, um, I really, I, di I, mm, I didn't think you were the type that would just grab a hold of a lady without some warning first. Showing off a little bit of Kvothe's feminism. Is that the word we want to use for him? Mm, no, this strikes me more as the patriarchal chivalry masquerading as feminism. Yeah, I'd say that that's true. At this point, Denna makes a comment about how, for a decent loot, he's got a really crappy case. Turns out that Kvothe has spent all of his money on his loot, and this is setting it up so that Denna will do a very nice thing for him, but beforehand give him a massive anxiety attack because future knowledge, we know that this is setting up for Denna to usurp the case and the loot and take it to somewhere nice to have a nice one made, which winds up kind of being like the piece of the Titanic that Rose floats away on <laughs> when eventually Kvothe's boat capsizes and he needs something to buoy him. I mean, that little bit saves his life. Yeah. Honestly, if you have a wooden case that you can get that watertight, that's pretty good. And it's here where Kvothe notices that Denna's missing her ring. And he finds out that Ambrose, in fairness, initially offers to fix it for her. But ultimately, because of the way that Denna's relationships are almost always mercurial. 
now Ambrose has access to her ring and Denna does not. And as soon as Denna refused to do favors for him, Ambrose pretty much said, well, it's mine now. Because he's truly a jerk. I'm not so sure that, well, it's mine now is really true because it's currently the jewelers. There's just like the IOU slip, the claim slip that is in Ambrose's possession. You kind of get the sense that he's holding on to it as a means to have leverage. I kind of get the impression that Kvothe wants us to think that Ambrose is using it for leverage. I'm not sure that Ambrose really even cares. That is also entirely possible. And of course, it's here that we know that with Kvothe, when Ambrose is involved, mischief will soon be afoot. Why does it have to be afoot and not like an arm? And we're definitely knowing that Kvothe has a heist in mind. Future knowledge us knows that Kvothe has a heist in mind. Current knowledge of Kvothe is Kvothe is going to get some sort of retribution. We don't know exactly what's in store, but I think that it pays off quite well. Well, and he's already told her what he is, a thief. True. With that, I think it's time to move into Fronimos of the Week. So it's my turn. And there weren't a whole lot of choices in this chapter. I mean, we really just had Will and Sim, obviously not Kvothe, and Denna. So, I picked Denna. Well, that's good, but there is one other person. Who? The creepy person who is bankrolling the drinks for the night. You haven't made a very good case for this person, so I'm just going to go ahead and leave him off. Okay. <laughs> So here we see that Denna is in fact quite a shrewd operator when it comes to dealing with people, just across the board. She's pretty quick to figure out the nature of how Will and Sim are doing with the ladies, which is to say badly. Failing. Flailing. She's also pretty quick to play up their own naivete in thinking her lesser as a card player. I also have a feeling that she has worked this con many times before. The hustle is kind of the oldest in the book, and she sells it. She play, takes their natural assumptions and then plays into those and then subverts them. That's how a con works. At the same time, she's able to pretty accurately describe how Jeffrey gets conned, if he is, in fact, not a con artist himself. But I think that that interaction also proves that she's not just shrewd that she actually has a heart yeah she does think that it's pretty terrible the situation that he's got himself into she's also shrewd enough to know to cut her losses that she can't save him from himself if he in fact needs saving i mean because there's really two possibilities either a he really is that incompetent and that naive and yeah there's gonna be no amount of effort that Denna would be able to take to save him from his own foolhardiness. Or he is pulling a con himself, in which case cutting her losses is the smart move. Right, but we do know that she gives him her earrings. Probably more than he deserved, but we also know that she can probably find a way to get something of equal or greater value with a new mark. True. And at the end of the day, I think... Denna 
tries to follow campsite rules when it comes to her partners, the people that she chooses to associate with. I think she wants to leave them in a better place than she found them, where possible. That's not always possible. I mean, Ambrose. Right. I'm just also going to put this out there. You can say you want to leave them in a better place than you found them, but there's only so much you can do because people have free will, and there are some people who are just going to make bad choices. Both. Yeah. Well, and then you also have people like Ambrose who are not going to become better people overnight. Or possibly ever. Yeah. They aren't going to do that unless they want to, and you can't make them want to. I think also she's able to ask questions in ways that are effective at getting answers. You look at how she pumps Will and Sim and Quoth for information about the Arcanum and magic use. She plays to their egos. Like, as much as they're like, oh, we don't want to talk about it because of the Iron Law and all that stuff, university rules and such, you can tell that she is looking for ways that they can make themselves feel impressive. So she plays up some of their insecurities. She understands how they work. She understands what makes them tick and plays them like a fiddle. You can say that it's manipulative, but it's only manipulative to a point because they want to tell her this. She's just giving them a permission structure. So just some thoughts there on our Nemos. With that, why don't we move on to our interesting fact of the week. What do you have for Master Elodin this week? All right, so a little behind the scenes. I also told Will this, but I'm telling everybody else this. My interesting fact this time around is going to be short. Not because it's not interesting and not because I don't know more information, but really the interesting bit is short. Initially, I was thinking about telling everybody about these scientific studies that proved that taking a break wound up allowing people to be more productive over a long term or even like the short term of like an hour if you take a break in the middle. It's pretty intuitive. Not enough of us do it. I had a reason for saying it. It's because Page of the Wind, which is also a wonderful podcast about the Kingkiller Chronicle, is taking a short break because they have been producing, like, I don't know how often they actually record, but they have been producing podcasts that take the books a page at a time (laughs) for, like, ever. So they are taking a much-needed break. And so I was thinking, okay, correlation, but I didn't really particularly want to go into all of the studies and whatnot. So instead, what you get is that wombats are the only animal species that we know of that poop cubes. Well, I mean, that gives a new meaning to the expression shirting bricks. Like, perfect cubes? Pretty much. Like, they're not... The (laughs) the look on your face is hilarious. Okay, so it's not like they have razor-sharp edges or look like they've been like, made by a 3D printer or whatnot, but they are cube-shaped poops. Like regular cubes? Like cubes. Like equal on all sides? Maybe more like 
rectangular, maybe, maybe a little, but they are flat on the sides and on the ends. <laughs> now that is one weird adaptation. <laughs> and wild ones have more cubic shaped poop than ones in That you would find in like a zoo or whatnot. It probably does have something to do with the amount of water that they have access to, but they still poop cubes. <laughs> Can't wait for those to be used to build walls. I mean, they do use them to mark their territory, but like other animals do this too, but the cubes don't roll because <laughs> they're cubes. <laughs> Look on your face. I mean, <laughs> only in Australia, I guess. Part of it is because, so the shape of their bowels and also which parts of their bowels perform more, like, strong contractions wind up kind of looking like <laughs> a way that would produce cubic-shaped poop. Weird. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Well, consider me interested. Yay! I guess with that, we're going to go with the recommended thing of the week. Yep, it's my turn. So I thought I would recommend one of our favorite YouTube channels and just general creators, and that is the fine folks over at NerdForge. So NerdForge are two people, Martina and Hansi, who live in Norway, Martina is a painter and all-around artist. She does things with 3D art, 2D art. Between sculpting, model making. Leather work. Leather work, sewing. Both of them kind of have dabbled in metal casting and all sorts of other things. Then uh, Hansi specializes more in like fabrication and the more engineering side of things. But the two of them are... One, a lot of fun to watch. They're really cute together. And I love love, so obviously that's cool. And they're also just really creative in the projects that they undertake. For instance, a camper van, and then they painted a Bob Ross tutorial on the side. It's so, so pretty. Like, they totally gutted it and redid the entire inside and have videos on it, which is really, really neat. And then the painting is so beautiful. They've also done murals together and all sorts of fun 3D projects. They've done some rebinding of books like The Lord of the Rings with leather. They've done metal casting on book covers and tomes that they have created that way they have tutorials on book binding on their patreon and then martina has also done 3d paintings with resin and mixed media dioramas yeah all of this is really well done and well presented and it's clear that they're both having a lot of fun doing it also one of my favorite things is the castle that they made for their cats yes that was quite enchanting we make no secret of the fact that we love our podcasts, and to see fellow creators who 
love their cats as much as we love ours is always something that brings joy to our hearts. On top of that, they're kind of inspiration for me for once or if we ever get our house project off the ground because it is hard for me to find kind of nerdy inspiration for interior design that doesn't look kitschy but Martina's murals are gorgeous and they give me inspiration and hope that I could create something lovely and to our tastes without taking a huge risk of just screwing it all up. And I think the big thing to take away from it is there's no way to avoid making mistakes, but the best thing you can do is to actually take the risk and move forward and put yourself in a position to make those mistakes. Because some of those will end up being things that you may think are grievous errors, but actually open up new possibilities and present new challenges that give more opportunities to be creative and come up with cool solutions. So yeah, I absolutely love their attitude. I love their style. I think they're great folk. You can find them on YouTube under their channel NerdForge. I think it's at NerdForge for their Instagram. I'm not sure, but I follow them. So if you follow us, you could probably find them through us. I don't know how Instagram works that well. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not really an Instagram person either, so following me on Instagram is one of the most boring exercises someone can take. Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. It's okay. You didn't have to. That's all right. I'm bad at it, so I try. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to our seven words. I have seven words from the book, and I mean, this is a dentist section. And that means, obviously, there's going to be a ton of them. And honestly, there were more than I could count or put together. I would have been typing all night just trying to record all of them. So I just got one. That is, there's more wind tonight than I thought. That's actually what I would have chosen as well. I'm going to look at my book real quick because <clears throat> I do not type them, nor do I write them down. I just highlight them. Because, again, sometimes those Dena chapters are more orange highlighter than yellow highlighter. And You Say You're Not a Gentleman was the other one that I really liked. This got me thinking about the way that people find their first name. And I think what it boils down to is what they truly value. So I think, for instance, Quoth saying the name of the wind at the end of the name of the wind... The reason the wind is what he gravitates towards is because it represents freedom. It represents the ability to go at will places where no one else can go, to do anything that you so desire. I think that's what Kvothe wants. He wants freedom. He wants that sort of open road. He wants to travel. He wants to go anywhere, see everything. He wants to experience stories. We later learn that Fella is the first in Elodin's class to master a name, and she masters stone. And I think that's because what she craves is stability. She wants that rock-solid strength that comes from knowing who you are and where you fit in the world. We see that Fella is an incredibly grounded person. She's one of the most practical and pragmatic people that Kvothe knows. So yeah, this quote reminded me of that thought. 
just something to think about and keep in mind as we learn more about the names people learn. I just have to let you know that there are a couple other seven-word sentences that made me laugh a little bit. Oh, yeah? Specifically, only wines from Ventus have a vintage, which is ended with technically. Oh, Sim. It's a common misuse of the word. Cute. Mostly because you have a habit (laughs) of using quotes very similar to that about things, obviously champagne, but other random things you're like technically oh yeah technically correct is the best kind of correct as we have said before so i thought that that was something worth noting arkvoth is a bit of a show-off simon froze and flushed red with embarrassment and i was no gentleman i was a thief but i like the one that you chose thank you so what did you pick from life a couple of nights ago Also, ignore the weed whacker noise if you can hear it. Sorry. We're almost done, guys. Our neighbors just doubled down. (laughs) Dang it. Anyway, sorry for the end of the podcast not being great, but I would like to finish. Anyway, I am mildly distracted. What you said to me a couple of nights ago was, you had some very good ideas today. I mean, you have very good ideas pretty often. Do you remember saying that? Yeah. Do you remember what it was about? Not especially. So it was the day that we had our 4th of July tea party. Mmm, yes. It was pretty tasty. We had a couple of our friends over who were vegan, and I made all sorts of different goodies, and they brought over desserts, and we relished in the irony of celebrating American Independence Day with tea. And vegan English-inspired tea sandwiches? Yeah. Worked out pretty good. Thank you. And with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. And thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we bring you a very special pod that is a mailbag episode. That's right. We're going to be answering your questions from actual listeners. And maybe also some imaginary ones. You'll never know. By the time this airs, it will already have been recorded. But we have been soliciting feedback from our Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Patreon accounts. So if you want to participate in future mailbag episodes, that's where you'd want to look. We really do enjoy meeting virtually at this point, but meeting our audience and interacting with our fans and even making new friends that we didn't know a year and a half ago when we started this whole endeavor. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. And now for the credits. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would love it if you would join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to the show a little bit early, as well as Patreon-exclusive bonus pods and other exciting items. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding.
Great gerb. Yay. I want to see if I can get Boo Boo to purr into the mic. I'm making a note here. Huge success. Aw. She's probably just hungry. Yep. 